Uh, real quick, two things. Julie already mentioned the Albania thing. If you are staying, if you could let me know uh, immediately after the service, that'd be great. We just want to make sure we get enough food, pizza for people that are staying. Um, also, I'm super excited. Uh, um, we have something that if you are interested, you are welcome to, to get. Um, we have made some uh, HGC shirts, yeah, and I'm keeping the cost as basically just production, so six bucks, right? That's not unreasonable. Um, if you are interested in them, we've got some actually here right now. Um, I have one on. I thought about just wearing it to preach in, but I just couldn't pull the trigger, I, I'm still got some old fashion in me. I've got to dress up a little bit, okay? I mean, if you were here back in the early days when I was first here, it was suit and tie every week. Um, but uh, I, I've lightened up on that, but I can't go to just t-shirt. I just can't pull the trigger on that. I'm sorry, and I'm not criticizing those who do. Uh, if you are interested in them, uh, if you could just put, you know, six bucks per shirt in the Tide box and maybe mark what the designation of size, that way I can, and they are out in the foyer in boxes. Try not to, if you go to grab one today, rifle them all out and make a mess because I'm going to have to organize them again afterwards. But they go from size small all the way up to triple XL. So uh, having said that, I am not marketing. I just love to, I love this church and I Hope that you are excited about it, and this gives you an opportunity to, to show people your church family. So, having said that, let's jump into Mark chapter 10. We are continuing through this uh, book, and we are actually at the, the literal turning point, the pivot. The, 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 the last verse we're going to cover today is, uh, is oftentimes referred to as the, the hinge of this entire book, that everything shifts after today. So, if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to go through Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. We're going to read through verse 45. I'm sorry, verse 32 through 45. So, once you get turned there, if you could stand with me, and we will read this together. Starting at verse 32 of Mark chapter 10, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be, your, be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning that we can dive into it, knowing full well that the truths that Jesus taught his disciples are the same truths that are for us today. So Father, I pray that as we listen to you, that you would speak through me, that you would speak the very words that you desire our hearts to hear, convict us where we need conviction, and exhort us and encourage us where we need to be moved. We thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So the context here is what we want to start with. Jesus is back on the road again after another interruption. If you remember last week, we talked about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus um, and, and essentially Jesus, uh, dealing with his heart, the rich young ruler asked, what shall I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, and as I even, those words are coming out of my mouth, it actually gives thought to some more things in the sermon. I tend to try and, I would prefer to write as little notes for sermon prep as I can. Unfortunately, I have to keep some notes or I will rabbit trail and we would be here all day. But um, even this morning as I was sitting and listening to worship, I had an application all written out and the Lord said, that's not what I want you to teach. And so I've already scrapped that. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to say when I get there, but we will get to it. But uh, even just walking through this context is so vital. We talk about how you don't pull Scripture out of context. You, don't, you, you have to look at why it's in where it's specifically at. What's the story? What's the context? And Jesus has just dealt with his, this rich young ruler coming and saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that will be very significant when we get to the end of this passage because essentially what this passage deals with is our doing as followers of Christ, okay? And I want us to not forget what Jesus deals with the heart of this rich young ruler and saying that if the idol of your heart is in the way, and you need to understand, and what we're going to get to is it's not about what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. So keep that in mind. So we come to the turning point of this book, and it says, and Jesus was on the road again, uh, and he was on his way going up to Jerusalem. And for those of us who know the story, we know not just this specific story, but the gospel story. We know that not just to Jerusalem, but to the cross. And this is actually the first time in Mark that it is mentioned that Jesus is finally on his way to Jerusalem. And that's part of the reason why it's the turning point. He has been doing his ministry in Galilee and, and, and Samaria and, and the outer reaches, and now he is finally on his way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And the first thing I want us to see in this text, something that was just amazing to me as I looked at it this week, is we see the heart of Jesus. We see the care and the concern of Jesus. And I want us to note uh, in this first, what, three, four verses, couple verses, three things I want us to note. Okay, they're not alliterated, and they just happen to be three things. But it says in verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Pause there. 
The first thing I want us to note when we start talking about the care and the concern of Jesus is He leads. He leads. Jesus was, we're told, walking ahead of them. Keep in mind, where are they going? They're going to Jerusalem. They're going to the enemy's den. They're going to the very heart and the crux of where the enemy resides. And Jesus is where? He's out in front. Jesus does not send us into the storms without leading us first. Jesus never goes or tells us to go somewhere he is unwilling to go. And note that he knew what was coming and he never hesitated. He didn't cower in fear. He did not linger waiting, but he walks right into it. And we're told in other places of Scripture, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it tells us that he was resolute, that in the Old Testament reference, he had set his face like a flint. He was unchanging, that he was on his way to the cross, and he was going without hesitation. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, he did all this without hesitation. And believe me, we cannot separate the humanity of Jesus and the emotions that would have been going through him, that he was a very real person. I guarantee he did not want to go through it. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to be persecuted. He didn't want to be ridiculed. He didn't want to be tortured. He didn't want to have nails pierced through his hands. We know in Luke chapter uh, what, 22, when he's praying in the garden, he pleads with the Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. He didn't certainly want to be uh, isolated and separated for the first time ever in human and in, in, in cosmic history, separated from the Father. He didn't want to experience that. Let's never forget that. I think if we take the emotion out of it and just say, well, he's God. He has no emotions or feelings about it. He was just willing and happy to die on a cross. He was happy to die for us. He was not happy to die. It was not his desire to do that. It was his desire to pay a penalty for, for us. And what amazes me about this is knowing full well what he was going into, he walked out in front of them. He leads. Notice what the text also tells us. It says, and they were amazed. They were amazed. Those who were with them, were, they, they, first of all, they were amazed, it tells us. They were amazed because he was courageous. They knew what he was heading into. They may not have known the details, but they knew that the Pharisees who had said uh, that we had been told by Mark in, in, in what Mark chapter 3, that the Pharisees from that time on sought to destroy him, that, that they desired to kill him. It was not a surprise. It was not a, a concealed thing. In, in John chapter 11, verse 16, we're told that... Um, uh, oftentimes these disciples, they, they had a glimpse. One of my favorite little lines that you can easily miss is they knew that wherever Jesus went somewhere, his life was in danger. In John chapter 11, it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. Uh, they come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you got to come. Uh, and, and the Pharisees have been plotting against Jesus. And, and Jesus says, all right, let's go. We're going to go to Lazarus. And Thomas, and this obscure verse says this incredible thing. He says, all right, guys, let's go with him so that we can die too. They, they know all of this is in their mind, and, and they must have been amazed that Jesus was walking straight into trouble. There is nothing I uh, 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 am walking in trepidation and fear more of than confrontation. 
I am not a person who enjoys confrontation. I hate doing it uh, because it makes me feel uh, 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 cringe inside. It makes me nervous. It, it, it's just something I'm not good at. And here we have Jesus who says, eh, I'm going to go die, and I'm going to lead you guys there. And they were amazed at that. He was courageous and he obeyed. We're told in Philippians, the the mind of Christ is that he was obedient even unto death. And he goes always into the storms and never away from them. But not just were they amazed, it says, and those who followed were afraid. Because maybe they didn't fully understand and expect, know what to expect. And they were going into any enemy territory. They, they imagine the anticipation, the anxiety, and the fears that they must have had, knowing full well that the seat of religious uh, Judaism was in Jerusalem. And Jesus has been saying all kinds of things. In fact, uh, there are many times where the fa- disciples pulled Jesus aside and said, Hey, Jesus, don't you realize that you're offending the Pharisees? And, and I'm sure that there was trepidation as they walked. And with each step, they got closer to Jerusalem. And Jesus is out there, and they're amazed at him, but they're also afraid. But the first thing, you know, that I said, I want us to note about Jesus in the heart is he leads. But also because of that, we see his care that he gathers. He noticed that they were afraid, and taking the twelve again... He begins to tell them what is going to happen to him. He gathers. His care is unmistakable. He's sensing their fears. And like a good shepherd, he gathers them all in for this holy huddle and says, Hey, guys, I know you're afraid. Let's talk this out. How many times in our life are we afraid of what is unknown? We're afraid of what's going on. And we can come to Jesus who says, Hey, come here. I want to talk to you. I want to tell you what's up. Jesus doesn't just leave us in the dark. I know that sometimes we feel that way because we don't know what's going on. Well, here's an amazing thing, and, and, and I want us to note a couple of things with this. Uh, he senses their fear. He gathers them up, and note it says, He gathered them again. This isn't the first time Jesus has gathered the twelve together to, con- to, to deal with something, to, to work on their heart, to talk to them, to, to care for them, to love them, to deal with this. And, and He will do it again in this very text. It's amazing to me. Jesus never avoids things. It is a demonstration of His shepherding His children. That is comfort to me. And when I am walking into something I am unsure of, when I don't know, Jesus gathers His people and says, I want to talk to you. And the third thing that I want us to see from this first part of Scripture is not just that He leads them, He gathers them, but He prepares them. Notice what it says. It says in verse 32, He gathers them again and He begins to tell them what is to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Hey, great pep talk, Jesus. Right? But I love how it starts. It says, he gathers them up and he says, it says that he's going to tell them what was to happen to him. And he uses the word see. It's almost like Jesus, in other words, is saying, I know you're afraid, 
but let me tell you exactly what's going to happen. See, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you exactly it. And he goes through. And it's not a, a, a pick-me-up speech, but it is the truth. And it's, it's 100% what's going to happen. And I think in that we can see his care, but also we can see his concern. And it is twofold at the moment, all right? His concern is two things. Number one, his concern is the mission. He wants them to know, I am going to die for you. That's my mission. My mission has always been the same. In John chapter 12, it tells us that Jesus says, I am coming for this reason to die for you. That has been Jesus' purpose from the very moment of his, his conception and his birth and his life. All things lead up to if you read through John, it talks about the hour is not yet, the hour is not yet, the hour is not yet, the hour is not yet. All throughout Jesus' life, it's the hour is not yet come, the hour is not yet come. Jesus says to people, my hour is not yet here. Then we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes and he prays. And then you know what he says at the end? When he wakes up his disciples and the, the, the mob is coming to him, he says, guys, wake up, the hour is at hand. Because all of his life has been up to this one moment that he would die on a cross for people. That is Jesus' mission. And so he tells his disciples, guys, let me remind you, this is what's going to happen. I know you're afraid. You can sense the fear in the disciples as they are afraid, as Jesus is walking and leading them right into the lion's den. And Jesus says, let me tell you guys, this is exactly what's going to happen. What assurance. My mission to die for them. That's his first concern. His second concern is their memory. I found this fascinating. This is now the third time that Mark tells us that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and be raised again. The third time. Is it because they're men and they forget things so he has to tell them over and over again? Probably. That's why my wife has to remind me, hey, you need to do this. Hey, you forgot to do this. That's why I forget where my keys are, and I got this new device that I can beep to find my keys. Because men forget things, but you know what? It's not just men. People forget things. Repetition so they won't forget. Why? Because they will connect it after the fact. That after Jesus is risen from the dead, they'll be like, oh yeah, now it makes sense. In fact, the enemies even say in, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 63, uh, the, the Pharisees come to Pilate and they said, Sir, remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days I will rise? Even the enemy remembers what he said. It gives credence to what he said. It, it's the fulfillment of his promise that he said he was going to die and then he rose again. And he wants that to be ingrained in their memory. So he tells them a third time. And they won't forget the miraculous nature of the promise. So that when the, the disciples go to the empty tomb, the angel says to them, Guys, what are you doing here? Don't you remember that while he was alive, he said that on the third day he was going to rise from the dead? He's not here. That when they're on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears with them and talks to them and unfolds the Scripture and say, all of the Scriptures are about me and what I've done. And then Jesus disappears from them and, and they say, don't you remember? Our hearts burned as He shared all this with us. And it reminds us of what He told us. This 
right here, this little paragraph, though it might seem uh, to not fit some of this, is amazing to me. It tells me the heart of our Lord, that He's willing to lead into the storms. He's willing to take you. He doesn't go or He doesn't, I'm sorry, He doesn't ask you to go somewhere He's not going to lead. And then when you are in the midst of that, He's going to sense your fears and your trepidation. He's going to gather you to Himself and say, hey, let me just share with you the plan here. And He's going to prepare us for whatever that looks like. That's the heart of Jesus. And then it goes on, the story goes on to tell us uh, not just the heart of Jesus, but the heart of the kingdom. And so Jesus continues on the road, and, and we get this kind of obscure story, and, and, and Luke tells us a little bit more. Um, and and uh, so it says that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What a request! You know what? Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their question. You notice that? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus doesn't say, well, why? that's so childish. Why would you say that? It is. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it sounds like something, you know, my, my kids would say, and usually it's a preface to something that they know I'm not going to give them permission to do, right? Hey, Dad... Listen to me, and whatever you do, uh, just let me do it. You know, that's usually never followed by anything that is a good idea. It's usually followed with, uh, I'd like to eat candy for supper, or whatever it might be. Uh, but uh, uh, here we have the request, and it's kind of a, 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 an interesting one. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? What a heart. Jesus has for us, that he knows, he, he filters what we ask because he knows that we are his children and sometimes we ask in childish ways. What do you want me to do for you? And the request, in fact, in, in the other gospel account, it tells us that, that James and John's mother was with them, which makes it even seem even more childish that mom has to ask on their behalf. But there is something to that that I find interesting. Uh, the mother of James and John is Salome. Uh, and I think it's important to put all of this in context. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Yeah, they're afraid, they're amazed. Um, but they've been promised by Jesus 12 thrones that they are going to rule on. And so their mindset is probably on the kingdom that Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem and conquer and that he's going to establish his ruling authority. And, and Salome, who, who most scholars and many of the early church fathers believe was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so if she's coming to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, um, uh, you know, as we approach this uh, kingdom that you're about to have, um, you know, when you set up your kingdom rule, hey, a little nepotism here would be good. You know, if you're going to give seats of power away, why not give them to family? Keep it within the family. Because James and John would have most likely been Jesus' cousins if Salome is indeed Mary's sister. 
And there are two seats of power here that are mentioned. Give us the right hand and the left hand. And oftentimes, if we understand culture back then, the right hand would have been the position of authority in the kingdom, and the left hand would have been the position of the confidant of the king. And so these are incredibly important positions. And I find it ironic that as they ask these questions in just a short little while, about a week, two thieves would be at the right and left hand. Of Jesus. So, what is Jesus' response to all this? Because it seems like an outlandish request. Jesus says in verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. How often is that the case for us? We go to Jesus with our requests and we say, Hey, Jesus, I need this, this, and this. And we have our grocery list of things that we need from Him today. I need this, 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 and this. And Jesus says to us in a sweet and loving way, because I do believe that it was in gentleness and care that He looks at them and He says, You don't know what you're asking. And I am so thankful that the Lord doesn't always answer us the way that we want Him to answer us. But He answers us knowing full well what we need. So he says to them, you don't know what you are asking. And he asks them a, cup, a, a kind of confusing question. He says, are, uh, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And, and there's a lot in there, and I'm, I'm not going to dive too much into it, but suffice to say, if you can imagine uh, Jesus talking about the, the drink and the baptism, it's his suffering and death on the cross. Okay? There is some interesting stuff, and, and I don't want to dive too deep into Greek, but there is some fascinating stuff that the, the Greek uh, usage here is that Jesus says, um, uh, uh, are you able to drink? And that is in the active form, meaning that Jesus is willingly doing it. He is actively doing it, and the baptism is in the passive form, which means he is allowing it to be done to him. Okay, So this is, it is kind of significant that Jesus is saying, are you willing to go through suffering, and are you willing to allow death through sacrifice? He says, you don't know what you're asking. You want to you want to seat with me in glory? Are you willing to allow these things? And are you willing to do them? And they uh, very quickly answer, "We are able." And I imagine Jesus, with a smile, knowing full well their future, says, "Yes, you will." Not because of a sadistic nature, like he's yeah, they're gonna get it, but I think he's pleased knowing full well their future because tradition holds that James and John both were sent through suffering. James, the head of the church, was beheaded. And John uh, uh, went through, in fact, a, a, a martyrdom attempt and then was eventually banished. So yes, you are. You will. And I believe Jesus was, was smiling at that, knowing full well. But then he says something amazing. Verse 40. He says, But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. What? Jesus can't give those? He says, But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Brothers and sisters, that is is an incredible encouragement to us today. What do I mean by that? Your inheritance 
is secure. That Jesus himself was not going to alter the, the inheritance that was to be for whoever was to sit at the right or the left hand. Our inheritance is reserved for us, prepared for eternity. It is secured for eternity. That the seat at the right hand and the left hand was already reserved. It was already prepared. God has prepared your inheritance that one day you will receive and no man can alter that. If Jesus himself said it is prepared and I will not alter it, who can ever alter our inheritance with Christ? The answer is no one. To sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Shockingly, when the ten others heard it, this is the first time that they've ever been referred to as the ten, they heard it, uh, you would be surprised that they were upset at James and John. Not sure why, I mean, they were trying to, to ease into these specific places of honor, and the disciples hear it, they're not so happy, and Jesus says, I will not have this. And so what does he do? Again, he gathers them up. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to himself and said, and he's going to teach them. So he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke uh, uh, the James and John for their desire for greatness. He doesn't rebuke them. He never has. He, he, he's going to instruct them on how to get it. Um, And Jesus will not allow something, this is so important, brothers and sisters, Jesus does not allow division. Division is something that God Almighty hates in His church and in the body of Christ. And when there is division, He's going to address it immediately. So He calls them together and He says, I'm not going to allow this to happen. And He teaches them and He says essentially what we're going to read here. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here's what Jesus says. He says, the way of the worldly kingdoms, that is not how my kingdom operates. What is up is down and what is down is up is reversed in my kingdom. In, in the world, it is a rat race. You know how it is. If you live in this world, you'll, you'll experience very quickly in career advancement. The way you get there is to step on somebody else to get up. If you want to be great in this world, you've got to take and, and grab life by the horns and wrestle it and take it and it's yours and, and, and grab hold of things and, and always strive for more. And, and, and you know why uh, 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 marriages end in divorce? Because we say, I need and I want and if I'm going to be great, I'm going to take it at the expense of others and I don't care. Jesus says, you know how the world operates. And, and believe me, it would have been very uh, real to the disciples because they lived in Israel, a place that was conquered by the Romans, and the Roman rule was there. And the, the Gentiles were, were lords over the, the, the Jewish people, and they loved to make it known, and so they would have rules like if a soldier's coming, you've got to carry their pack. You're obligated to because we are in charge, and you will obey us. 
And, and, and he says, you know how they are. They exercise authority and they make people do things. And, and they have the right and the rule. And he says, and they're great ones. They ex- exercise authority over them. They're even worse. And Jesus says, all of this you see, it's not how it's going to be with you. And he's very adamant about it. We will not act like the world because my kingdom is not like this. I mean, you see it throughout church history. The Roman Catholic Church, power grab, power grab, and suddenly there is an authority structure that is not biblical. There is authority that says, I have, I mean, where in the world, when did the church become such a way that a man would wear a, 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 a costume and make people bow before him and kiss his ring? That when Martin Luther was told that he needed to kiss the toe of the Pope in order to be uh, 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 restored. When did the church come to that? That is not the biblical approach. Brothers and sisters, as elders, we do not exercise some sort of godly uh, right that we have to you and your spiritual walk of faith. We are to be your shepherds. Jesus says that when we come to Christ, all have access to God, not through a priest, not through a pastor. All have access to God. In fact, Peter, in instructing the elders, said, guys, this is the precious body of Christ. Don't do it for money or gain. Do it because of love. It says it's too easy to feel we have the power. It is too easy to feel we are entitled. And that's ultimately when power and authority problems come in is because of entitlement. So what is Jesus' kingdom? What is the answer? It says, whoever would be first among you must be, I'm sorry, uh, whoever would be great among you, you must be servant. Deaconos, it's the exact Greek word that is used for deacon. You want to be great? You don't have to be assigned the role of a deacon. You are a deacon. Brothers and sisters, if you are part of the body of Christ, you're a deacon. Because we're called to serve one another. Over and over again, Paul's instructions, serve one another. Outdo one another in honoring one another. Serve, serve, serve. That's how greatness comes into the kingdom of God. But he says, not just if you want to be great. By the way, I'll tell you how to be first. This is mind-blowing. Please listen carefully. He changes the Greek word from deacon to doulos. You want to be first, you must be slave. What does he mean by that? A slave means you have no right to your own life. That is tough to hear in America. where we scream at the top of our lungs, I know my rights. These are my rights. I have a right to to do what I want, to say what I want, to be where I want. I I I can do whatever because these are my rights. I have my rights. And when you will become a slave, you have no rights. You want to be first in the kingdom of God? You say, my life is not my own. I was bought at a price. You want to be first in the kingdom of God? This is Christian maturity, by the way. 
that we rise to a place where we say, I live, yet not I who lives, but Christ lives in me. It is not my life. Brothers and sisters, this is hard. But imagine if we live such a life our mentality actually was under the lordship of Jesus to this very point. Imagine if we lived such a life that our mentality actually was that my life was not my own. How would relationships be drastically different? If when I came to my wife, instead of being right about my argument, I said, how can I serve my wife? Because it's not my rights. But we think we're in America, so I have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have the right to the pursuit of happiness, and she is not making me happy right now. Jesus says, your life is not your own. You were bought at a price. You want to be first? You want to grow in Christian maturity? Get to a place where you say, you know what? My life is not my own. How can I serve? How can I bless? How can I, I offer myself wholly to the Lord? And then, as if to close it off, Jesus says, for. The reason, the reason all of this makes sense, the reason that this works, the reason for all of what Jesus is just now saying, the reason that the kingdom of God exists in the way that he is saying that this is how you do it, this is how you become great and how you become first, the reason for all of it, for the Son of Man came what? Not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. By the way, the reason I can say this is I'm demonstrating it for you. Paul tells us in Philippians, let this mind be in you which was in Christ, which by the way is yours. If you are in Christ, this very mindset can be and should be yours. What was that mindset? That though he was counted equal with God, in the very form of God, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, he offered himself through obedience in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the death, even death on a cross. He had every right to be served. He was king of kings, lord of lords. You say, I can't give up my rights. That's too hard. Jesus was God Almighty. And he said, I will yield everything. I can't do that. He did. King of the universe, creator of all things, said, I will lower myself. I will offer myself. And I will sacrifice myself. That's tough. So Jesus gathers his disciples who are arguing about, you know, who's going to be first and who's going to be great. And then they become mad because James and John are trying to gain the seats of power and, and elevate themselves to some sort of position. And Jesus says, no, 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 guys, we are not going to operate like this. This is not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is this. I came to die for you, and that is the example I'm leaving for you. And at this point in time in my sermon, I thought, you know, hey, here's the application. How are you following Christ by serving others? And that's a very true application. We can talk through that. 
We can talk about how are you serving your family, your church? How are we doing these things? You know, there are two mindsets within mankind and especially and particularly to the local body of Christ. There's the consumerist mindset that said, I need, I need, I need. How are you going to serve me? How are you going to counsel me? How are you going to fill my needs? How are you going to play music that I like? How are you going to make the carpet and the walls look the color I want? How are you going to make me, me, me? Or we can say, how can I sacrifice self? In the kingdom of God, I could easily say, in the kingdom work of Christ, there should never be a volunteer shortage ever in any ministry because we ought to be serving our hearts out. And that would be fine, but I don't want to browbeat people into serving because that's not the gospel. You can let the Holy Spirit convict and work on your heart in that aspect, and that is fine. And and believe me, brothers and sisters, we ought to be serving. We ought to be serving one another in such a way that as we have received, we are giving freely and giving beyond. But there is a caveat to that, and that is Mary and Martha, right? Martha worked, 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 and then she comes to Jesus and says, hey, why is Mary just sitting here being lazy? And there's a division, right? There's a division between Mary and Martha, and there's a division in the church because so oftentimes there are people out here serving, serving, and giving their hearts and working and working, and then they look to other people who are just sitting around and they're saying, why aren't they serving? And then there's division in the church. And that's not what we're called to. Jesus looks at Martha. He's not addressing Mary, and I'm not saying that what Mary is doing is right or wrong, but she did do something that was right, and that's what we all ought to be doing when we are sitting here complaining about others not serving. Because there's one thing we lack. There's one thing we need. That's to be with Jesus. Why? Ever pause and think about that? Because if we are all like Mary and just sit around, nothing gets done. Remember, Jesus came with the sole purpose to lay down His life for us. He has served you and He fills you so that you can give. Brothers and sisters, people don't necessarily need to hear what they need to do because they know what they need to do. People need to hear what's been done for them. And that's that Jesus came and laid down his life for us. That if we consider and pause and think about that fact, that Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, said, I didn't come to be served. He'd be the awesomest church member for any pastor. You know why? He walks in the doors of the church and he's not saying, where can I get my coffee and my scone and find the best seat in the service so that I can hear the sermon that ministers to my heart. But you know what he says? He says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. See, the gospel isn't what you are doing for the Lord. Because I think that's the other end of the spectrum that we get into, and that's why I want to be careful not browbeating people into saying, you need to serve, we need to have more volunteers. We, need we do. Don't get me wrong, we need people to, to, to help with worship. You know, we've got a brother who is constantly doing an awesome job and leading us in worship, and, and let me tell you, that brother could use help. Not because of his lack of skills or anything like that, but because it's easy to get burned out. But here's the gospel. It's not about what you're doing for the Lord. It's faith in Christ alone. 
Work comes, you know, because this is the problem that the Catholic Church got wrong, is that it's, it's, works plus, or it's faith plus works. But the reality is that faith produces salvation that leads to works. That out of the roots of salvation come the flow that leads to works. That if you are transformed by the living God who sent His Son to serve us and to die for us, our hearts should reflect that because as Paul said, that mind is ours in Christ, that He has filled us and He has given us His mindset. And so when Jesus gathers his disciples on the verge of getting ready to die for them, you can see the importance here that this is going to be the founders of the church, that when he is gone, they are in charge. And he says, this is not how it's going to be. We're not going to lord ourselves and our authority over one another, but we are going to serve one another. And you can see it in the writings of Paul and Peter and James and John, that they get it. So all I want to remind you with this morning as you read this is that Christ has done all for you. And while I'd love for each one of us to run out to a sign-up list and check off what we're going to do, meditate on that fact. It's been done for you. And then let the Spirit lead you in what you should and shouldn't do. Because the kingdom is not based on authority, the way we think of it. But it's based on servanthood and it's based on saying and recognizing that my life is not my own, for I was bought at a price. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You Father, I thank you that my salvation is not dictated but what I, by what I do in church. And Father, that's a hard message for me to preach when I know that there are needs in the body of Christ. But Father, I want us to understand, to get it into our minds deeply. That is not what we do for you, but it's what you've done for us. And Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect and holy life. That he walked ahead of his disciples into Jerusalem with one goal in mind. To offer his life as a ransom for me. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here today that does not recognize that. Maybe they're working themselves to the bone, trying to serve you. Maybe they're working themselves to a place where they are exhausted. And you have told us in your word that your work is not to cause us to be weary. That we can come to you and you say that my work, my labor is easy. My burden is light. Because you have shouldered the load for us. So, Father, I pray that if there is anyone in here today that does not recognize that you have come to live and die a perfect and holy life, that on you was placed all of the wrath that we deserved, and that by your death and the power of your resurrection, we are given a new righteousness to all who believe. 
Lord, I pray that today would be a day that people would say and recognize that is true for me and I accept it and I believe it. And today I am a child of God. God, would you remind us as your children too that our kingdom is not like this world. That you are moving in our hearts and you have laid the example for us. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.